following message is by a guest speaker of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. So the passage today is uh, Genesis chapter 28, verses 10 to 22, and our sermon title is Breaking the Fourth Wall. Um, back when I was younger, I had a couple of friends of mine that were best friends, my older brother and mine, because they were two brothers, and uh, my older brother and I are about two years apart, and they also are two years apart. And their names were Peter and Danny, and they lived maybe about a five-minute drive from our house. And during summers, a lot of times, my older brother and I would take our bikes and we would bike over to their place. And I remember one particular summer where literally probably almost every day uh, we were over at their house. Our, we lived in an apartment and we didn't have people over that much because there was not a whole lot to do, but they had all the best game consoles and um, they had a, a bigger house than ours and a bigger TV. So we went over there all the time. And their mom became like a second mom to us. Actually, my younger brother, who's seven years younger than I am, ended up calling her Mimi, which is her, his like weird way of saying mommy because he was his second, or she was his second mom. But I remember one time uh, we were over at their house and um, we would also bike from their house to Winkleman Elementary School, which was pretty close by. It was maybe about a mile away. Um, so we would all take our bikes and we would, we would ride over there and then play on the playground or play in the field and do some, play some football or something like that. And we had done that probably at least several dozen times. And then one day there was a couple of other friends from our church that came with us to Peter and Danny's house. And then we all decided to go to the park at Winkleman. So we biked over there, and um, we were playing, we were playing, we were playing. And I don't remember exactly why this happened, but when we were leaving, Peter, Danny, and my older brother needed to get back first or something like that. And so they ended up leaving, but before they left, I remember Danny turning to me and saying to me, are you sure you're going to be okay? You know the way back, right? And I said, yeah, 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 of course, like no problem. And I was waiting up for our other two friends or something like that, and, and so they left. And then we started on our way back, and first like minute or so, we were good. And then all of a sudden, I was looking at all these streets, and I was like, I don't really know where I am, <laughs> you know? I've been here a bunch of times. I'd gone down this path so many times before, but there was always somebody else leading me there. And so I realized, like, I've been here, but I don't really know the way. And so we started trying to find our way, and I was trying to, like, not let the other guys know that I was lost. <laughs> and so um, I would find, like, landmarkers, and then all of a sudden, I would be like, you know what, guys? I'm not really sure, but I think that that mailbox, that red mailbox over there looks really familiar. So I think we're on the right, right track. And then we'll walk a little bit farther and be like, oh, yeah, for sure. I've seen that green door over there a ton of times. So, so we're, we're good. And then we'll walk a little bit farther and be like, I, I, th- I think I've seen that bird-shaped mailbox before, too. I'm not really sure, but maybe. And then we kept on walking. We were lost. It took us probably about 15 minutes to finally realized um, ourselves that, man, we're, we're not going to make it home by ourselves. And we just tried, kept on trying to find our way, find our way. And then finally, Danny came back for us. And he was, this is probably about a half hour later. He was like, what's taking you guys so long? <laughs> we're like, I honestly didn't really know where I was going. And he said, like, he had come back for us because they had been waiting at home for so long that he was just like, there's no way it should take them this long. So finally, he led us back to their house. And during that experience, I thought I knew the way because I'd been to that park and back a bunch of times. But when I needed to find my own way without anyone to lead me, I realized just how little I actually personally knew about that path. 
I think many of us are kind of like that with God. If someone were to ask us if we know God, just like when Danny asked me if I knew the way back, we would probably confidently answer them like, yeah, for sure, I know God. I've been to church a ton of times. I've read the Bible before. I've prayed. I've been to retreats. But if someone were to ask you how you know him or how they would get to know him too, you might get a little lost. And that's where Jacob is in our story today. He knows about God in a pretty obscure sort of a way, but he hasn't really had any sort of personal encounter with him that we know of. There are three stories about Jacob that come before this one in the book of Genesis. The first one was about his birth. That's when he came out grabbing the heel of his twin brother Esau and how he got his name, heel grabber, is the meaning of Jacob. And he was a younger one by seconds and almost looked as if he was trying to fight his way to be the first one out. Now, this may not seem like a big deal to, to many of us, but back in that day, of course, it made a huge difference whether you were the first or the second son. So being the first son meant that you had the birthright, which entitled to a greater portion of the inheritance, and also meant that you got your father's blessing. You became the head of the household when your father would pass away. And I don't know how much closer you could get to being the firstborn than Jacob was, because he was literally holding his brother's heel as he came out. And yet, close only matters in horseshoes and hand grenades. And so he got none of the benefits that his brother Esau got. It didn't matter how nearly he was a firstborn. And we can tell from the biblical account that this clearly mattered to Jacob. Because the next two stories that we hear about Jacob were about how he convinces Esau to sell his birthright to him. Esau decides that he's famished one day, coming in from hunting, and Jacob has his pot of stew brewing. And so he convinces Esau to sell him his birthright in exchange for the stew. And then the third story is about Jacob stealing his father Isaac's blessing from his brother Esau. So again, because Esau was the firstborn, Isaac, their father, was going to give his blessing to Esau and pass it on to him. But Jacob steps in the way and steals that blessing away. So now he has functionally become the firstborn of the family. And that's all that the Bible tells us about him up to this point. And yet, despite all of his crafty antics and his scheming ways, none of this was thwarting God's plan for him. In fact, before he was even born, his mother, Rebecca, had received a, 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 a word from God saying that the second would end up ruling over the first and that the younger would rule over the older. So all of this that happened in Jacob's story up till now had been foretold. But just because it was a part of God's plan doesn't mean that it made, didn't make other people mad, right? And so Esau was really, really mad. He was mad enough to kill Jacob, and he literally said that he was going to do so. And so because she feared for Jacob's life, Rebekah, Jacob's mother, sent him away to stay with her brother until Esau's anger subsided. And that's where we pick up in Genesis chapter 28. This is verse 10. It says, Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. Now I want you guys to notice in this text how much, um, how much emphasis the ESV gives to the place that Jacob was at. It says, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night. And because the sun had set, taking one of the stones of that place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. There's so much emphasis on this 
place that it is kind of awkward to even read. It's unusual. It doesn't seem like it could be just by chance. And while we may draw other inferences about this emphasis, there is one undeniable conclusion we can draw. That is that God was there, right? It was in that particular place. Not that God just existed somewhere or that he had a vision about a God that is in a place, but in that place, at that time, God chose to meet with this man, Jacob. And God is beginning a work in Jacob to show him that he is the God that is here. Not in a theoretical way, like there's a place somewhere that I don't know and I can't reach where he exists, but that God was right here with Jacob. For many of us, we've come to understand in our experiences in church and in life that God is real. We believe that God is real. We believe that the Bible is true. We believe that Christ died for our sins, right? Yet maybe the one struggle that I've heard the most in my seven years of doing youth ministry has been, God just feels so far from me, right? I've done all the church things. I've been to all the church programs, and I've heard all the church messages, But for whatever reason, God just still feels like he's far from me. And I think many of us, in a sad way, have become just okay with that state of things. But I want to remind you all this morning that our God is not just a God of out there, but that he's a God of right here, right now. Not just in our world, but in our country, in our state, in our town, in our church, in our families, and in my life, and in your life. God doesn't exist somewhere, sometimes doesn't just rule from afar, but he actually really acts in real time, in real places, with real people. His desire is not for us to just get to know that he is there, but he's here with us. This whole encounter with Jacob was the first moment when Jacob became aware that God was pursuing him of all people. And so this place where he meets God becomes a special place. And it's the story of this place and this meaning that we're told in the rest of Genesis 28. So what was it about this place that made it so special? Let's pick up again in verse 12. It says, He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with his top reaching to heaven and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Now, we can break this dream up into four parts. And actually, in the Hebrew, there's this word that is used to kind of uh, separate these sections of this dream. And that phrase, when it's translated into English, in the version that I read, it it actually excludes it because it doesn't really have a a particular meaning, okay? But in order for us to see how this is broken down in the ESV, they actually include this translation as, and behold, okay? So at the beginning, it says, he dreamed, he had this dream, and behold, he saw a stairway, or another translation for that word is a ladder with its top reaching the heavens and it's, it was resting on the earth, 
Okay, so there's this stairway. What does is, what is this stairway represent? Well, some people have taken this, and this is um, known not even just in Christian circles, but now has become known in more widely as well as Jacob's Ladder, right? It's this point, this, this place where heaven and earth connect. And so he sees in this vision, this ladder or this stairway, where heaven is open and it's connected to the earth. And the second thing that he sees, it says, And behold, there were angels. Okay? There were angels that were ascending and descending on it. Now, when I'm looking, looking at this big picture of these first two points, I'm realizing that, okay, God is showing Jacob that heaven is open. It's not separated completely from earth. And there is a connection there. And not only is there a connection, but there's this highway on which these angels keep on working and going back and forth, right? I worked at a restaurant for the past seven years or so, and I've, I, I know what it is to be in this hustle and bustle. We've got this tiny little hallway, and our, our, our restaurant is pretty busy, where all the servers have to go back and forth to grab plates, right? And I'm imagining when I think about this stairway of this ladder where these angels are ascending and descending, that it's going to be like that, where these angels keep on going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, and it shows us that God is at work in this world. He is alive and active, that there is no resting on this connection point between heaven and earth. Another picture that came to my mind was uh, from a movie back in the day called Independence Day. Right? I'm pretty sure all of our youth group students have never seen this movie, and they probably don't want to watch it. But there was this, um, there was this huge slew of like, these alien movies that came up, right? And I wanted to use Independence Day as an illustration, but I figured that a good chunk of our congregation wouldn't be able to um, relate, and so I, I decided to use this picture from Avengers instead, right? Um, and this is from the original Avengers, and actually my wife and I saw this movie literally about five times while she was in the hospital about to um, have her C-section with Avery. <laughs> And, um, and there's this big battle in this movie called the Battle of New York, right? And there's this gateway that opens in the heavens where all of these aliens get to invade. And there are these huge, like, snake, serpent-looking creatures that come through, and all these aliens are invading the earth. And I don't want to spoil it, but somebody has to go up there and throw a nuke in there to close it up, Right? <laughs> But I'm imagining that this gateway into heaven and this, this, the fact that heaven was opened up and there was this stairway, this ladder that, that reached earth, and there were all these angels coming to and fro, that it was kind of like that, where it was like heaven was opened up and it was invading earth. That the angels of God were coming and they were, they were invading our space. They were coming to do the will of the Father. So Jacob sees this in his vision. Those are the first two things that we saw in his dream, right? And then the third thing that he sees in the dream, it says, And behold, I am, and the Lord said to him, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. God was reminding Jacob not only that he's active in earth, not only that heaven is actually open, there is a a connection point between heaven and earth, but that God has chosen Jacob's particular family as another connecting point for him in this world. The wording that is used in this reminder of this covenant that God has made 
is almost exactly the same words that he used to, to speak to his grandfather Abraham and to his father Isaac to share with them about the covenant that he made with their family, saying, look, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And through your family, through your descendants, all these people will be blessed. And so Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 2, when God calls Abram, he says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and you and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will, shall be blessed. And again, in Genesis chapter 15, verse 5, And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And it's a similar kind of an image that he gives to Jacob and says, Look, your, your descendants will be like the dust of the earth. They'll spread out to the east and to the west, to the north and to the south. So God is reminding him of the promises that he's given to his family. But last of all, and this is the one that honestly in my reading that I missed so many times, because it doesn't say and behold, and so maybe just that one word missing kind of threw me off. But in the last part of Jacob's vision, it says, behold, right? Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I've done what I've promised you. He gives this fourth part of this vision that Jacob sees. And it's not just a repetition of the promise that he gave to, Jake, or to Isaac and to Abraham, but it's a particular promise that he's given to Jacob. He's saying, look, Jacob, I know that you know that your family is blessed, that your family is chosen, that I've given this promise to your father and to your grandfather. But to you also, to you, Jacob, I'm promising that I will be with you. I will go with you wherever you go. And that I will make sure that the things that I've promised to you will come to fruition. And so just as at the beginning, we saw this weird emphasis on the place that Jacob was at. In this, these couple of verses, we see a weird emphasis on God saying, it is you that I'm talking to right now, Jacob. This is not just a, a, a promise that was inherited from your father, from your grandfather, but it's to you that I'm talking, to you that I'm making this covenant. And I think this is one of the major themes in the whole story of Jacob, and even in the whole story of Genesis, to be honest with you. The idea that God is not just interested in the masses, but in individuals that make up those masses. God starts the story of Genesis with creation, how he is the Lord of our, over all of creation. And then as he goes through the book of Genesis, he chooses a people, a particular person named, in the man of Abraham. And then his family to say, you, through you, will all the nations be blessed. God is wanting to um, seek out the individuals. Jacob's story is a story of election. God chose Jacob over Esau even before they were born. God had chosen Abraham amongst all the peoples of the earth. And, he, and then he chose Isaac over Ishmael. But in looking at Isaac and Ishmael, you could have credited the fact that he chose Isaac to the fact that, okay, well, Isaac was the, the son of uh, his actual wife and not, not his concubine. So maybe that's why Isaac was chosen. But in the story of Jacob and Esau, they're literally twins born of the same mother to the same father. And God is saying, look, I'm choosing the one that is less logical, the younger of the two, to be the one through whom I will bless this world.
And what better way was there for God to show that he is a God of grace and of election than for him to choose to fulfill his covenant to Abraham through a younger twin who was chosen before he was even born, before he had merited anything. And in this first personal encounter with Jacob, God makes this personal promise to him. He reminds him of the bigger promises that Jacob has inherited in his bloodline, but then he also reminds him that there's a promise that is specific for you. God didn't want to just be the God of Abraham and of Isaac, but he wanted to be the God of Jacob as well. And for us today, that means that for a lot of us, we've been sitting in, in, in these pews or in these chairs and churches for so long. We've been satisfied with just believing that God is the God of this church or of that church or of this group or of that small group. But God is saying, no, I don't want to just be the God of ICC, but I want to be the God of you and you and you. I want you to be able to say that he's not just our church's God, but that he's my God. He longs to be the God of each individual sitting in our church today. And it's my prayer that each person here will claim those personal promises of God to you. It's not just a collective that he longs for, but the individual a couple of months ago, my wife and I and our family, um, we went and visited my older brother in San Francisco. And um, while we were out there, um, there was this one afternoon where, you know, we, we had a chill vacation. We told them, we don't really care to do all that much. You don't have to entertain us that much. We're here with the kids. We want them to get to play together, and we'll just go to some parks every once in a while and whatever else, right? So this one morning, my uh, sister-in-law had a brunch date with some of her old uh, roommates, and so we dropped her off um, for her brunch, and then the rest of us took a drive to a near, like, like, park. But it wasn't just, like, a small park. It was, like, this big place with, like, light hiking trails almost, right? And, it, like, these trails, like, wound through um, some big forested areas, and there were big open fields where we could walk. And so, um, so my dad, who was there with us, and then my wife, me, and my older brother, and then our two sons— um, we went and we were walking around on these trails for a while just to kind of kill time and spend some time outside because we don't get the kind of weather up here in Chicago. And so um, we were walking around, and about the time that we were about to leave, uh, we'd been there for probably about an hour and a half almost. About the time that we were about to exit the park, um, we came across this birthday party that was going on outside, right? So these people had set up these picnic tables, and it looked like a kid's birthday party, something like what you see in this picture over here, and there's balloons set up, and there were big banners, and they were celebrating, everyone was having a good old time. And we had seen this party on our way in as well. And we stopped by at the bathroom just to take a quick bathroom break before we headed back to the car. And then um, all of a sudden, we saw these people just started running around. And I looked over, and I realized that one of the kids from the party had gone missing. And so we saw some of these parents scrambling and literally just running around this park, shouting, screaming at the top of their, their voices and saying, um, I honestly don't remember this boy's name, but I just made up Tommy, so we'll call him Tommy. And so they're shouting around and going, Tommy, Tommy, where are you, right? And they were, they were shouting, shouting, shouting. And then there were some strangers that saw them who would stop and put down their stuff and say, like, what does he look like? What's he wearing? And so they would also run around the park with them and, and looking for this boy. And um, we had our two, uh, two-year-olds with us, and so it was hard for us to really be mobile, but I asked Connie to watch Grayson for a second, and, 
And um, I tried looking around a little bit and was looking for the boy that they had described and, and to no avail. And to be totally honest with you, I, I wish I could tell you that, okay, we, we waited until the boy was found and then we, we went on our merry way because everything was good, but I don't know what happened at the end of the story, right? Because they were looking and they probably went at least like a half mile radius by, by the time that we were about to leave and they still hadn't found the boy. But I still remember the picture of what it looked like to have those parents and the panic that was on their faces and, and the desperation with which they were looking for their lost child. When I think about God in his pursuit of lost people, that's the picture that I imagine. Because there was nothing that those parents wouldn't do to go and find their child. And for those of you guys who are parents, you all know that, you know, parents' heart, there's nothing that would stop you from going and finding your kid, right? And in our story today, that's kind of where God is with Jacob and saying, look, I want to be your God. I need to find you. And just like those parents and just like God was seeking after Jacob that day, God's relentless pursuit of each and every one of us is evidence every single day of our lives. He's pursuing us. He's going after us. He's chasing after us like digging through holes and and, and going wherever he has to go to reach us. And of course, this story, just like all the other stories in the Old Testament, points to the story of Christ and the pursuit of God that didn't end at anything, but would result in him sending his son for us. Remember at the beginning, we talked about how there was this emphasis on the place and saying like God is showing Jacob that he is there. And remember, Jesus was Emmanuel, God with us. And God was showing us, look, I'm not just a God who exists out there in some theoretical world or just for you to acknowledge with your mouth, but I want you to know that I am here. I am with you. He showed us definitively that he is the God who doesn't just exist out there, but is right here with us in the person of Christ. In John chapter 1, verse 51, Jesus says to Philip and Nathanael, and he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Look at how similar this is to the description of this ladder that Jacob saw in his vision. And it's not a ladder in a dream, but through the Son of Man that heaven continues to break into and invade the earth and our lives. It's at the person of Jesus that there is this intersection of heaven and earth. And then it's at the cross where Jesus paid the price once for all, yes, for all of humanity. Yes, just like God had made a promise to Abraham and to all of his descendants that would come after him. And there's this broad promise saying, okay, there's a people that I'm setting aside for myself. And yes, the cross was for all of humanity to to, to pay the price for all the sins. But he also gives a promise on the cross for you the same way that he gave a promise to Jacob for him. Saying, look, I don't only want to be the God of this people, but I want to be your God. That yes, he wants to, to, to pay the price for the sins of the nations, but he also wants to pay the price for the sins of each individual, to restore fellowship with God for each of you. There's this strange-looking word 
that I came across in a sermon that I heard while I was actually at North Park University to um, take photos at an event that uh, Phil had invited me to. So I was there working and taking some pictures of this worship service, and um, the preacher that day uh, caught my attention with this word. It's hexiety, okay? Hexiety. I'd never heard of this word before, never seen it. And the whole sermon was based on this word hexiety. And the speaker that morning preached about this, and it's a term that was first used in the 13th century by a man named John Duns Scotus, and it means thisness. Okay, it means thisness. In Latin, apparently, hec, H-A-E-C, hec, means this. And so hexiety means thisness. And by thisness, I mean the quality of a thing that distinguishes it from all other things. It's something that can't be categorized. Like if I were looking out at our congregation today, I would say this. All of us here are humans, so we could put in the category of human. And some of us could be put in the category of male, and others would be female. And some of us could be put in categories of doctor, or lawyer, or engineer, or teacher, or, or father, or mother, or single, or married, or divorced, or remarried, or whatever else, right? There's all these categories that we could put people into. But your heck is the unique part of you that makes you you, and that makes me me that can't be put into categories. And so actually your heck isn't categorized. It is a category in and of itself. And it can only have one thing that populates it, which is you. And our God is a God who loves heck. He didn't make all one kind of flower or all one kind of bird or all one kind of animal or dog. He made all different kinds. And then amongst all the different kinds, he didn't make every Maltese look exactly the same and be the same size. But he made them individually. He made every person in this room unique, special. He doesn't even make snowflakes or fingerprints all alike. And so for sure, of all of his prize creation, he wouldn't make any two people exactly alike. And when we say that God loves you, it's true when I, when I say that and I mean it in the plural. When I say God loves you all, that's true. But it's also just as true when I say that God loves you in the singular. And he loves you and he wants you. And that's what he communicated that day in that place to that man named Jacob. And that's what he's communicating to all of you today. That he wants you. So let's close up and look at Jacob's response here from verse 16 to 22. It says, When Jacob awoke, awoke from his sleep, he thought, Sure, the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, the gateway to heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone that he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called that place Bethel, though the city used to be called Luz. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I'm taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's household, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I have set up as a place will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. 
of Jacob's response, I want to focus in on this covenant that he makes, this vow that he makes with God. He says, God, if you do all that you promised me, if you will be with me like you said you would, if you will watch over me on this journey wherever I go like you said you would, if you do bring me back safely to this place like you said you would, thank God you will be my God. And he names this place Bethel, which means house of God. And the reason why he names it Bethel is because God does come through. He does indeed walk with Jacob, and he does carry him, and he does watch over him on the journey that he takes, and gives him food to eat, and clothes to wear, and make sure that he returns safely to his father's household. In Genesis chapter 35, verse 13, after Jacob receives these abundant blessings while staying in, in Laban's house, remember at the beginning of the story, he was running away from Esau, right? And he was running to his uncle Laban. And he goes there, he ends up marrying two wives, Rachel and Leah. He ends up having 12 sons while he's out there. He becomes rich in material blessings. And God brings him back. And then he's even reconciled to his brother Esau, and he brings him to safely, safely return home. And God meets with Jacob again and reminds him once again of the covenant that he made with Abraham and Isaac and now with Jacob. And then he says in verse 13, then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken to him. Remember that God told him, I will not leave you until I have accomplished everything I've promised you. And so once he has accomplished it, in verse 13 he says, and then God went up from him. Doesn't mean that he left him and never touched him again, but look, I've done everything that I told you I would do just as I said I would do it. And Jacob can testify at the end of his life in Genesis 48, verses 15 and 16, as he blesses Joseph and his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. He says, and he blessed Joseph and said, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless these boys. And in them, let my name be carried on and in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, let them grow into a multitude into the midst of the earth. Of the earth. So Jacob made a vow to God saying, look, God, if you do all that you promised me that you would do, then you'll be my God. And for us, we live on this side of the cross. We don't have to look at God and say, God, if you will do this, then I will respond and make you my God. But we can say to him, since you have, God, since you have done all that you have promised, since I know that everything that hasn't been yet accomplished, that you have promised, will be accomplished, that is already affirmed in the work that you've done on the cross, that I can claim that ultimate victory in Christ's death and resurrection. And so, God, you will be my God. I'm going to close with just one last illustration. In plays and musicals, in, um, and now in TV and movies, there's this imaginary wall that they call the fourth wall, right? So for those of you guys who have ever been in, a, in some kind of a production, you, you may be familiar with this. This fourth wall is this imaginary barrier between the actors on the set and the people who are sitting in the audience. And so when you go to a live performance, it may just be literally just this imaginary barrier that sits right at the edge of the stage that, that, that separates the people that are in the seats and the people that are on stage. When you're watching TV or in movies, 
then it would be the, the lens on the front of the camera that has taken, those, taken that video, right? And the fourth wall gives a safe distance. It provides safety between the audience members and the actors. The actors can do their things on the stage and entertain me, and then I get to go on my merry way. Many of us have been attending church for a long time as regular members of the audience, but never as participants. And today, I believe God wants to break down that fourth wall. He wants to grab you, pull you up on stage, and let you know that the work that he's doing in this world, that when you see heaven opened up and these angels ascending and descending, that it's not meant for you to just watch from the sidelines. That he wants you. And when he calls us, it's not because of something that we bring to the table, like he needs another preacher, so he's going to find somebody who's a good public speaker, or he needs another band member, so he recruits somebody who's gifted in music, or something like that. But he wants you for your heck. It's the part of you that can't be replaced by anybody else. It's the part of you that, that you couldn't say, well, God, why would you use me because this person is so much better than me at that? Because nobody could be better than you at your heck. He's calling each of you as individuals. He desires to have your heart. So as we close up in prayer, I want to ask you if you will respond to his call and claim his promises for you today. Let's pray.